This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we watch something new in cinemas or on streaming and compare and contrast it to films gone by and examine the work of filmmakers and actors and sometimes just dip into genre to explore the history of cinema. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. I'm also the CTV movie guru here in Halifax. And my name is Stephen Cook. I'm an arts writer with the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax and general all-around movie fan. And you can find me on the, the Herald website if you Google my name, and I'm sure a host of stories will come up. And uh, yeah, it's great to be back here again, Karsten, with another sadly in-isolation show. It is indeed, yes, in isolation, but we can still talk about movies, we can still watch movies. Today we're talking about the work of great French filmmaker Olivier Assayas, and he has a new film on uh, Netflix called The Wasp Network, Uh, but we're going to go way back to his early work, and uh, there's a lot of great stuff to get into. Looking forward to it for the next hour. Welcome to Lens Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at newer films and compares them to films of days gone by, sorted by actor or director or genre or who knows what. We'll, we'll find something to, to link up these films no matter what we do. And this week, our connecting tissue is provided by the great French director Olivier Assayas, who has a new film available on Netflix, so it should be fairly easy to get a, get a hold of and watch, and it's called Wasp Network. And uh, it's it's a true story. It's 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 a little unusual for him. It's not like his typical movies, although he did do a similar film that we will be talking about shortly called Carlos about the uh, infamous terrorist uh, Carlos the Jackal, which is from 2010. But um, this is also ripped from the pages of history and I'm sure fairly uh, fictionalized, maybe not as heavily as Carlos was, but uh, but still uh, something that's, you know, still fairly pertinent to what's going on in the world. And uh, that is Cuba. Cuba is the subject at hand in the WASP network. And it's about uh, a group of pilots who are working against the Castro government. They're they're helping uh, refugees make their way to Florida, make their way to the States. And it's based on a book uh, about this, um, this effort called Brothers to the Rescue that was uh, basically, you know, sort of a front for the FBI or the CIA or various American forces. And uh, the book's called Last Soldiers of the Cold War. Um, the film was actually made in the Canary Islands. Uh, I don't know how much footage of Cuba there is in this. Maybe some of the aerial footage. It's hard to mistake the Malacan in Havana. Um, but uh, the scenes in in, uh, in Havana and uh, involving the actors and in uh, Miami, where a lot of the action takes place, appears to have all been filmed in the Canary Islands. So uh, I think they did a pretty good job of that uh, as they tell this story. Yeah, I didn't even, I, Stephen, <laughs> I didn't even know that. That's that's something your uh, research uh, revealed that I wasn't even aware. And so, yeah, I completely uh, was fooled by that. Uh, that That's really interesting. Yeah, I think the second unit crew does a pretty good job uh, providing enough sort of covering footage of like when they're dropping leaflets over Havana and stuff like that, that... Uh, that they kind of get away with it, but uh, but at the same time, uh, it would have been nice to have seen a little more actual Cuban atmosphere. But it's an American production, and and it's there are probably so many restrictions on doing that that uh, picking one location that could fill in for Miami and Havana at the same time and Cuba uh, was probably just as easy. But but uh, the the story concerns our main character 
who is Rene Gonzalez. He's a pilot. He was actually born in Chicago. So he has, he kind of has a foot in the U.S. already, but he's living in Cuba with his wife, Penelope Cruz, and their child. And one day he just steals a plane. Um, he is a pilot, so he knows how to fly it. But he steals a plane, flies to Miami, and announces that he's, he's not going back to Cuba and that uh, he's going to help out fellow Cubans uh, who are uh, taking rafts and small craft to freedom, but of course in very perilous waters, um, you know, infested by sharks and so on. Um, but uh, but his mission soon changes. He's, he's soon dropping pamphlets over Havana and then being asked to do some things he's not so crazy about because uh, as we learn from things like uh, the Iran-Contra scandal in the 1980s, sometimes these American... Uh, uh, bureaus don't necessarily play by the rules and sometimes do things that uh, are a little on the shady side and things this is where things get pretty blurry we don't uh, we don't really know who's working for who especially when he teams up with another Cuban pilot who defects to the US via Guantanamo Bay via the American base that's actually on Cuba and um, he meets up with a friend who's informing for the FBI and tells him there's some good money to be made <laughs> because there are a lot of rich ex-Cubans living in uh, Florida, Republican Cubans who want to see Castro taken down no matter what they do. So, of course, we get wrapped up into some of the schemes that uh, were undertaken to try and, uh, you know, either assassinate Fidel outright or just get him out of power and embarrass him and that kind of thing. So so this is the kind of shady subterfuge world that we're working in. And it's, it's fascinating to me, having been to Cuba and having been to Florida and having read up on some of these these efforts to uh, discredit Cuba and continue the blockade and, and really punish the people of Cuba just because Fidel's held out as this lone communist um, icon for so many years. It's, it's, it's almost a black comedy in some ways, but, but it's, it's, I mean, the film is basically a straight ahead drama, although there are comic moments in there as Asayas is wont to do in his films. But, but I found it a, a, a fascinating look at this period that doesn't entirely work as a film i enjoyed it it goes by very quickly the leads uh, you know penelope cruz and and ramirez who also steals the show in carlos are, are terrific uh wagner mora who plays uh, his friend uh, juan pablo roque um is also very charismatic and a very interesting character because we never really know exactly what he's up to um you know he's terrific as well uh but it, it doesn't entirely hold together and i think uh, you probably felt roughly the same way yeah, you're you're not wrong. It's um, it's interesting. The history is interesting, and I didn't know that Castro had sort of seeded these sort of uh, counter agents into the uh, American uh, system. And I, and I actually enjoyed the fact that the film isn't upfront, and the first act is not upfront as to the motivations of these these uh, these agents as they as they defect supposedly defect to the <laughs> yes. American side and are are working to uh, you know uh, to help the United States uh, these anti-castro American Cuban groups and infiltrate them but in fact that they are yeah they're they're doing it on behalf of Castro to get information and and disrupt them and you know uh, I, I yeah I, I appreciate a sort of convoluted spy picture as much as an person but but um, I sort of felt like he was really trying to cleave to the history of it without thinking about the the dramatics um i felt like the real heart and soul of the picture 
is with the the women in the story um with uh with penelope cruz's character who's initially abandoned in cuba her she's she she and her child are, are left there by her husband and she doesn't know what he's doing uh what you know and, and all she's her hears is that he's a traitor and it really impacts her life and of course um and then you know and then the other pilot uh gets married when he arrives in florida to anna de armas who is an actor who we've seen a lot of quite a bit uh, lately in movies like um blade runner 2049 and knives out and uh i just felt like the real their their uh their issues with they don't know what their husbands are doing and they have to put up with their their husband's missions um and uh and I, I just felt like I wanted more of their perspective. Uh, and although they're great in in the film, I felt like I could have used more of them. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you. The history is interesting, and I learned something about what was going on at the time. It's all set in the 1990s, so you know uh, that's kind of cool. And I appreciated there are these sort of Scorsese-esque moments, like yes. there's a, a montage scored to Surfaris as a wipeout, which uh, which I enjoyed, uh, which made it feel you know it gave it that sort of like drug runner thriller kind of quality but uh overall yeah i didn't really feel much for anybody and i didn't feel i don't think the film does a great job getting us to sympathize with anybody's cause uh when things inevitably go bad for everybody concerned it's hard to really care and i think we use, we see some um archival footage of Castro himself basically arguing his case, like why he had to do this. And I, I didn't, I don't know. It's just sort of like, okay, I guess, I guess the film sort of leaves it up to us to decide whether or not, you know, who was in the right and who was in the wrong. And maybe, maybe there, maybe it doesn't want to actually take a side. Uh, what, what did you think about that? Stephen? Yeah, it, it is a fairly ambivalent uh, movie politically. It, it definitely shows both sides being up to no good. <laughs> In different ways, it doesn't doesn't really take a side, and and I, I feel like the U.S. is a lot more to blame for what's going on than Castro is in a lot of ways. Um, not that Castro is an angel by any stretch uh, at all, but uh, but I feel like the embargo and the ongoing efforts to kind of stymie relations rather than working towards you know improving the uh, things in Cuba and and the relationships from Cuba and the West. I feel like um, you know actively working against them for so many years just became de rigueur as it were and when when you know and just when finally obama says you know maybe our maybe we've been doing the wrong thing with cuba all this time and then of course it just gets reversed immediately once he's out of office so i i feel like maybe this could have been a lot more relevant with that in mind um you know considering how recent it is but uh but it doesn't really go there in fact the i i noted it i wrote down that the you know that everything really starts to go wrong about an hour and 45 minutes into the film. And then the, it's almost over. It's just over two hours, um, which I, I will admit goes by pretty br briskly. Like I didn't feel like a long film. I felt like everybody is so charismatic and, and watchable, but, but it is a lot more surfacey than some of the films that we're going to talk about later. Um, so I don't, I don't regret watching it. I certainly enjoyed it. And he brings a, you know, Asayas has a way of just injecting life into a story. But, uh, but I felt like it was just kind of winding down when things were kind of getting interesting. I wanted to know more about, you know, what Penelope Cruz has to go through and, and she's just kind of left hanging. Um, and, uh, and so there's, there, there is that kind of wondering like, was, is there another like third of a screenplay that maybe he just didn't get to film or something like that? And I guess maybe I'll have to read the book now to, to find out more about these characters. But, um, 
and we didn't even we didn't mention uh, Gail Garcia Bernal, who's you know always watchable, always an asset in a film, and he plays uh, he plays a kind of a double agent who's actually working for the Pro Cuba with the, the Wasp Network, which is actually you know where the title comes from, is actually the group of agents working for Cuba under the guise of being anti-Castro, um, you know, and, and basically working right under the nose of the FBI and so on. Um, and, and maybe more of that kind of double dealing could have been fleshed out a little bit more because his role is, is left kind of up in the air as well. Like I would have liked to know more about him, but obviously uh, juggling so many characters um, without a strong central character, even though ostensibly Edgar Ramirez is Renee is the main character, but he also kind of, has to fall in line with everybody else. So I don't I don't know if, if maybe a sharper focus on Renee and his family would have helped or, or what, but I, I definitely feel like there's more story to tell after watching this. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, you know, it's funny. I thought of Ramirez as kind of, he's, he's many scenes, he's sort of distant and mysterious, which uh, is a great quality for a spy, but it sort of keeps us at arm's length, I, I, which compares to his, his performance in Carlos from 2010, which is also a an Assayas film, and it's available. Well, you can I watched it on Amazon Prime, but it's also available on the Criterion Channel, and um, it's uh, you know I watched it in the two hour 45 minute version, which is the cinematic, I guess, edition. It's also it was originally on aired on on television in Europe in three parts over five and a half hours. So there is, there are sort of two versions of this you can, you can watch. Um, but, uh, this, uh, his character, uh, Ramirez plays, uh, Ilyich Ramirez Sanchez, who, AKA Carlos, AKA Carlos the Jackal, who of course is probably the most famous terrorist of the seventies and eighties, um, operating with impunity between 73 and 1994, supporting, largely supporting the Palestinian cause. And, uh, his character there, uh, Ramirez, is is a really, I mean, comparing the two characters that he plays, Ramirez's uh, Carlos is uh, much more, while still being mysterious and dangerous and uh, and charismatic, he's he's a he's a lot more clear to me in terms of my picture in my mind of of a of this kind of a a man who lives by violence. He's He's proud and he's demanding and he is ruthless, but he's also incredibly vain. And that becomes very clear through the course of the film, how vain he is and how self-aggrandizing and how his need for attention is almost as important as his need for righteousness and revolutionary stance. Um, And I I really enjoyed Carlos. I enjoyed it more than, uh, than Wasp Network. Uh, It's, it's longer clearly. And it's got, more time to tell its story, which I think is an advantage in this case. But I think it's also just has more um, dramatic heft. I think that Asaius tells his sort of thriller-esque story with a, he's got, he just has more sense of it in in this case. And uh, basically it goes through these 20 or so years uh, showing how, what Ramirez, uh, uh, or I sorry, what Carlos did to uh, to uh, you know change global geopolitics, and he did he did a lot uh, for better or for worse. Uh, you know, the film ends up as kind of a mirror to Steven Spielberg's Munich, partly set in the same area, but where Spielberg was was looking at uh, agents of the Mossad looking to kill partisans to the Palestinian cause. This film shows the efforts of the other side, and 
Carlos is committed to this cause, and he has no trouble executing those he feels deserves it, even when his superiors take issue with his tactics and his ability to improvise in tough situations. And those situations include a gripping sequence uh, set in 1975, where Carlos and his comrades take control of an OPEC meeting in Vienna, which then became known as the OPEC siege. A hostage situation where, you know, you sort of expect that the hostage takers would be shot or arrested, but the story gets a, goes a little different this time. And that that really opened my eyes. I knew nothing about that. Uh, and and that uh, that whole deal with the flight, chartering a flight to Algiers. And um, yeah, and then, uh, you know, it, it's it's funny how how uh, certain elements of the story I did know, thanks to films like, like Munich or... Uh, uh, Seven Days in Entebbe, the 2018 film, uh, which which also uh, brings to light a, a, a terrorist uh, uh, event that that took place, a hijacking of a plane. So uh, yeah, uh, I, I think you also you like this film more than uh, than Wasp Network too. I think didn't you, Stephen? Yeah, I watched them in reverse order. So and I'd seen Ramirez in, in films before, but but often in secondary supporting roles where he's still kind of a standout but and and i thought he was great in wasp network you know i kind of wish that that his character had a little more background or or what have you and then i watched carlos where he's kind of the whole show uh and he's fantastic i mean he's venezuelan he was it's all it's almost like he was born to play this role because he he's he's from venezuela he speaks multiple languages because his, his parents i think were in diplomatic service or something like that um so you know, it's 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 like who else could have played this this role? And and you know, there's even a certain resemblance if you see the, the the couple of photos of Carlos that are that are out there. And and of course, he does a great job at being the older Carlos when he puts on weight and he's the various '70s uh, hair and facial hairstyles which come and go over the course of the film. And uh, you know, it, it's one of those uh, bits of history that I kind of knew in passing, and it was great to 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 sort of have a a better broader view of it and why some of these things happen now the the actual carlos the jackal is still alive he's still in prison in france apparently he didn't care for this film uh which is probably understandable yeah. because they say <laughs> they, they they say right off the bat that that it's essentially a fictionalized version of the facts that they know and so i imagine that maybe the character of carlos as portrayed uh is a little more heightened perhaps than the real carlos is brash idealistic or at least he likes to think he's idealistic maybe his his, his idealism is more driven by by ego and and, and vanity he's certainly ruthless and and vainglorious and uh and certainly a lothario too so I, you know i wonder how much of that is is true but I, obviously there are certain things they know and certain things they don't and and i think that uh say has basically wanted to portray the kind of like the terrorist as rock star in fact one of the characters actually makes that comparison in the film so it's it's pretty pretty obvious the, the fact that that he has groupies and he goes on tour more or less <laughs> you know yeah. on, but those those tour stops are in syria and uh hungary and eastern you know east berlin um but it's just it's just such a great portrait and uh you know, whatever, whether or not uh, it's all true, obviously they, they know the truth of things like their attack on the French embassy in The Hague and the OPEC siege and, and things like that, that they can sort of connect the dots a little bit with this character. And, uh, and again, I watched the full length version, the three episode miniseries. I, I 
it's out on Criterion. It's on the Criterion channel, and there's also a Criterion disc available. But also, I found this uh, Canadian-released Blu-ray that had two discs. One was the theatrical feature version, which, as you say, is like close to three hours, I think. But then on the other disc, it had the three-part miniseries. And I thought, well, go go big or stay home. So I watched <laughs> the whole thing. Um, you know, I'm not sure what how it got shaped or how it got cut down to make the feature, but you know, it's probably secondary stuff involving supporting characters and so on. So your version may have been even more Carlos focused than the version I saw, but I just thought it did a great job of portraying the period and, you know, just, you know, what some of these, you know, terrorists that aren't purely ideological or purely driven by, you know, religious fanaticism or whatever it is that drives them, you know, how they kind of have to shift gears uh, especially when they're not well welcome in any country and and uh, how their circle just goes into this downward spiral and I, I I thought it was all all pretty fascinating and, and and you mentioned of course Munich and and the the incident at the uh, at the Olympics and uh, the raid on Entebbe and that I mean there's an intersection there because after the OPEC uh, siege doesn't go quite the way that his backers and the uh, the people's uh, liberation Force or the, the people's front for the liberation of Palestine. Um, it doesn't go the way they quite wanted it to go. Uh, so they tell Carlos he's, he's banned from their next operation, which of course is the one that ends in complete disaster in Entebbe. So, you know, and it was just, uh, you know, it was made even more news obviously because it's still famous and well-known today, but also, you know, it was quite tragic. Um, and uh, so he literally dodged a bullet there, I guess, but, but uh, that would, that would make a great, great well i don't know a double feature that'd be an awful long night at the movies but to watch munich after this and and see how those two stories intersect i think would be pretty fascinating so today on lens me your ears we're talking about the work of olivier Assayas, the great french filmmaker he's been making feature films since the mid-1980s though screenwriter screenwriting longer than that he's he's very well respected and i can understand why he he's a very cerebral intellectual storyteller uh though and i found it fascinating how he resists thematic through lines uh he can do family genre. He can do intimate, um, semi-autobiographical films. He can do genre films, and uh, you know, I, I, I think, I mean, I, I really enjoyed this tour through some of his films, and we didn't even get to see all of them. I mean, he has so many of them, and and many, and some, especially from earlier in his career, are very hard to find. Um, you know, he, he, uh, his first. One of his first films uh, as a screenwriter was Rendezvous from 1985, directed by Andre Techné, and it stars Juliette Binoche, apparently a breakout role for her in French cinema. Um, and uh, interestingly, uh, a connection with Binoche would be uh, resumed later in Assayas' career, and in Binoche's career, we'll talk about that for sure, with uh, cloud, Summer Hours and Clouds of Sils Maria uh, and nonfiction. But... Uh, 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 Assayas wrote Lunique from 1986. Uh, he wrote uh, Scene of the Crime, Avril Brise. His first film as writer-director was Disorder, also from 1986, and Winter's Child from 1989, Paris Awakens from 1991, and A New Life from 1993, all of which, uh, as far as I can tell, are hard to find here in Nova Scotia, I mean, in, Nova, in North America. I couldn't, I couldn't lay my hands on them. But uh, Cold Water from 1994 starring Virginie Ledoyen, is on Criterion, 
I didn't see it, but Stephen, you did. Do you want to say a few things about that? Yeah, I did, and and uh, it's you know it, it's interesting. There are some echoes of this in his later film, but it's, it was initially started out. It was going to be like an hour long thing that was going to be part of. Uh, I don't know if it was going to be a TV series or a series of special TV movies. He, he quite often does work for French television. That's of short form or hour long things that we we don't get to see on these shores, which is unfortunate. And and that's how this one kind of started. And as, as a feature, it's only about an hour and a half or 95 minutes long. So um, he basically just took his hour long idea and fleshed it out. And the whole idea was to get notable French filmmakers to make films. And they were going to be short hour long stories based on their teenage years or inspired by their teenage years. And uh, so, um, so uh, cold water, low froid, um, it's basically about a, a, a teenage couple who, you know, they're they're smart kids. They're 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 good kids at heart, but but they're rebellious and their parents don't understand them, and and they're very French. <laughs> so there's a lot of you know they're always smoking and so on and and rebelling against authority, which is trying to take things into account. You know that uh, they're kids, you know, and they they remember you know, the May revolution in 1968 and that kind of thing. So they're, they're, they're kind of acting out to a certain degree. And uh, Virginie Ledoyen plays Christine, Cyprien Fouquet plays Gilles. And, um, you know, they decide to, to go on the run, but of course they have no resources. And, uh, you know, th- there's an extended scene at a party, which I expect is the part that kind of got fleshed out to make it feature length um, because it kind of goes on and on and on. But, but at the same time, the parents are, are looking for her and her parents are split up and that makes things more complicated as well. And uh, I, I felt like it was um, it was like his version of uh, Rebel Without a Cause if it had been directed by Robert Bresson kind of thing. It's, you know, cause, because <laughs> for the most part, he's using non-actors for a lot of these roles. And, uh, you know, uh, Christine has a very... Um, you know, you, you kind of she has a very kind of blank expression, a very realistic expression, which is kind of a, a Bresson thing. Um, and you kind of have to read into it what she's thinking, what she's feeling. And, her, her, you know, the, everybody, everybody in authority or parents and, and teachers and so on, they want to send her to a mental hospital, which just seems like the worst thing that could possibly happen to her. And, and hence, uh, she decides to go on the run with Gilles. And uh, I mean, you know, she's intelligent. She's funny. Uh, you know, there's certainly there's there's some some fire in their relationship but of course they're also teenagers and they they tend to act out without thinking or without regard for others and i but uh i i found it a pretty believable portrait of, of kids at that age and uh you know when, when they, they've got kind of nothing to lose and they just kind of put the pedal to the metal and and you know don't seem to you know care let you know let, let the chips fall where they may kind of thing and and uh i like i like the portrait he obviously you know, it felt personal, even though it's not about film or anything like that. And but it does it does feel like he had a lot invested in this story. And and there are other films that we'll talk about where he doesn't doesn't necessarily feel that way in re- terms of his regard to the material. But here it, it felt uh, it was, um, you know, he's looking back, but it's not necessarily nostalgic. You know, he's he's recalling the teenage years as being so- somewhat painful and, and somewhat um traumatic and and so it that's uh that was from 1994 so of course in uh 2012 he kind of returns to a very similar character to Gilles in something in the air which i've not seen um 
and uh, I think you've seen it, and I believe it's available on Apple. So I'm thinking. Yeah, actually, I, I haven't seen. Oh, you haven't it, seen but, it. Uh, yeah, right. it, it's one. It's one that's definitely on my list to see, and I want. This is you know we can only so many hours. <laughs> I in know. A day, well, and basically, we've seen. We've got we've got a lot of movies to talk about here this afternoon on uh, <laughs> on uh, on on this uh, on this show. But uh, but yeah, if I was to of the list of things I'd like to see from him still, uh, Cold Water and uh, Something in the Air are definitely two I would watch and because they are both semi-autobiographical I would uh, I would definitely consider them as a double feature well, that would make a great double feature because Jill is, is kind of similar to the teenage man or boy in, um, in something in the air uh, now uh, Cold Water uh, is available on the Criterion channel so if you have that service um, in Canada it is available on there so that, uh, that's probably the easiest way to, to try and see it uh, now he made Irma Vep in 1996, and that was, I think, maybe the first film to really reach an international audience. And his first collaboration with Maggie Chung, who he was actually married to for a while in advance of uh, of Clean, they were broken up by the time they made Clean in in uh, 2002, I think. But uh, but uh, they still clearly had a a collaborative uh, relationship. Uh, Irma Vep is a behind-the-scenes satire set on a French film shoot with the director trying to remake Fouillade's uh, Le Vampire, a classic silent film, and casting Chung, playing a version of herself. Um, and uh, she's sort of, interestingly, we spend a lot of the time on set, but when she's offset, she's sort of inspired by her latex catsuit costume to become a thief in the hotel she's staying at. Uh, I gather that Irma Vep was a shot and written in quite a hurry with plenty of improv and it takes a lot of shots at the kind of drama and personality conflicts and connections that take place on a low budget film as well as the sexism the racism and the snobbery that goes on in the french film world i found it a very charming and funny uh comedy uh sort of a 90s independent film um and you know i, I you mentioned you know uh, assayas loves his his he's clearly a french filmmaker and he has he is avant-garde in some respects, and he he tells unique, interesting, independent stories. But he also has a, a fondness for world cinema, for Hollywood, and uh, you can tell that he has some real love for film that's baked into this story. Uh, and I can understand why this film was something of a sensation when it arrived. It has an uh, energy to it, and he he also is someone who really likes music in his films. Uh, Sonic Youth. Uh, Tunic yeah. song for Karen is on the soundtrack when Maggie picks up a Sonic Youth poster. Uh, I love that sort of nod to the audience. He does that. Aseus isn't isn't afraid to add a little bit of meta commentary in his films, and uh, he uh, he also uh, this was the first time as well that I uh, noticed that a lot of his films that are set in Paris will have people on scooters, which I know really appeals <laughs> to you, Stephen. Oh, big, and I big couldn't time. help but no, I couldn't help but notice that there are all there are very frequently. Uh, women uh, on on scooters riding through Paris, which I I really I really enjoy too. <laughs> There's a lot of things about his films that are so entertaining and and sort of nod to the audience in a way, and and Irma Vep definitely does that. Well, there's a moment in Summer Hour where we learn how difficult it is to find parking in Paris. So I guess the, the scooter uh, motif makes a lot of sense from a practical point of view. Uh, but uh, I, I could probably go on at length about Irma Vep, but I, I know that uh, we have a lot more to talk about and a lot of time. But but this was the first film of his that I saw. I saw it shortly after it came out. Um, and I was, you know, and my primary interest was, of course, Maggie Chung. I was 
very much a fan of Hong Kong film and certainly the work that she had been doing, um, you know, in genre films, but also in dramas. She's in a wonderful historical drama called The Sung Sisters with Michelle Yeoh that hardly anybody's seen in North America, about three women who just who are sisters who just happen to wind up to three of the most uh, powerful political figures in uh, in Asia. Um, you know, that was a great historical melodrama, but she could also do, you know, certainly the, the Kung Fu and the action stuff like Heroic Trio, which we see some scenes from in Irma Vep. And just her, she's playing this version of herself where she's, you know, she's like a fish out of water in this, you know, multilingual film set and, uh, you know, and kind of bouncing around with, with nobody that she knows to connect with. So she connects with the, the costume designer who also has a bit of a crush on her. And that creates some, some fiction, uh, some friction and some problems. And, and just, uh, just watching her navigate the chaos of this film set where, you know, a lot of these people have worked together and they have relationships from over the years. And, uh, that whole film set family idea, um, is, is really, uh, really well uh well described in a film that's that goes by pretty quickly and and um again it's it's only it's only uh an hour and 40 minutes long uh but but i find that, that you know everybody kind of gets their moment uh we got jean-pierre leo the great um french new wave actor from the 400 blows and and Godard films as well um he's on hand as the director who's basically falling apart at the seams uh trying to make this tribute to the great uh french silent film classic um, you know the, the the vampires, and uh, it's it, it's just amazing watching. Like you wonder, is this film ever actually going to get made? And that's almost like kind of the the mystery of the film in a way. And it's it's it was just great watching all of this combine. And Maggie Chung is so charming playing this, you know, essentially herself more or less, but uh, but certainly a, a fictionalized version of herself. And and she's so wonderful as like the calm at the center of this storm. And it was great to re-experience this film and just uh, see how many, how well those elements all work together. Yeah, I, it was the first time I saw it and I really liked it as well. And having watched it this week opposite Clean from, actually Clean was from 2004. Uh, you know, seeing her play these two different parts was really interesting i mean she's a really versatile actor and clean she stars as emily she's a musician looking to make a big break with her partner lee and they're both heroin addicts as is spelled out by don mckellar's music manager and emily haynes playing herself in metric <laughs> at performing at some hamilton gig um we see queen street in toronto too this might be the first time that toronto has actually played hamilton uh it's an international copro which explains why clean uh has this canadian location there was some canadian money in this um anyway what happens is that lee overdoses leaving leaving maggie chung's character alone they have a son but he's in custody of lee's father played by nick nolte so that's where the rest of the film kind of goes it leaves behind the canadian milieu it goes back to paris where Emily, uh, that is uh, Maggie Chung's character, works as a server in a Chinese restaurant and sustains her drug habit while still fighting to get opportunities in music, hoping for a meeting with Tricky, uh, who plays himself, while the drug culture life makes it feel like she's just one mistake away from prison. She is a deeply unlikable character in Clean, but uh, the film feels like it's daring to for us to sympathize with her. She's charismatic, she's a, you know, quite believable as a rock star. And when we finally get to hear her music, you know, it's not awful, but to me, it's kind of a velvet underground pastiche. Um, 
And, you know, her vulnerability and her desperation starts to make her more sympathetic as we go on and we start to understand her and she expresses a genuine interest in having a relationship with her son. Uh, and at the end of the film, I think it's more of a character study. And Chung is remarkable in the role and she won Best Actress at Cannes that year. And you can completely understand why. She's plausible in English, in French, and Mandarin. When she speaks English, I notice her accent is very different than the accent that she speaks English with yeah. in um, in Irma Vep. So she's actually altering her accent in other languages to better inform the character. I mean, that's that's kind of amazing. That's high-level stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I really liked uh, uh, Clean a lot. And, uh, and again, we're seeing Essayist do very many different kinds of things, different kinds of movies with enormous amount of skill. Uh, and, yeah, that was it was great to see it. Yeah, I was glad to finally get a chance to see this just because, um, you know, like you say, it was one of those international co-productions and it manages to use the elements of those films. We got to have a star from this country and film scenes in a couple of countries to ensure that you get the funding from their funding body and you get them from this funding body. You know, it's, it's you know, every every year at the Atlantic Film Fest, we see seminars on this sort of thing and all the weird hoops you have to jump through to kind of pull these things together and uh and a lot of them really don't work because they're they're often this kind of patchwork quilt of ideas and you know uh backgrounds and actors and so on they're not really necessarily a complete vision but here uh Aseus knows the game well enough that he's figured out which elements work well together and and uh you know the fact that it starts out in hamilton uh and she's just you know, just basically shows how isolated and alone she is when everything kind of falls apart right at the start of the film. And she needs to get back to Europe. She needs to get back to her comfort zone and rebuild her life. And, and it all works in- incredibly well. I'm glad I finally got to see it. You managed to snag a DVD of this at the time where that blink of an eye when it was available on DVD. Um, but I believe it is available through, uh, if you want to see Clean, it is available somewhere although and actually now i'm looking at just watch uh com and it's not showing an availability for it anywhere so uh i guess it's something you just have to try and keep an eye out for but but uh yeah. Ch- chung is great in this she certainly uh she certainly deserved that award because uh you know i mean she's done amazing work in films in hong kong in in the mood for love you know maybe that the, the the peak of her her career as far as that goes but but she can bring those chops to a lot of different films. Actually, another film, uh, not to get too far out tangent, but she was in a great film with Jeremy Irons called Chinese Box, directed by Wayne Wang, that if you can find it, I, I don't know where you would. It's pretty hard. I got to see it at a festival, but that's worth tracking down as well. And uh, she's okay. she's the show here. And obviously, even though they they split up by this time, they must have had some either friendship or simpatico relationship that works so well in this uh, in this film. Yeah. Yeah, no, there she is really great. Um now before we move on to the final segment and a couple of Olivier Assayas's more recent films, uh a quick nod to uh we're a couple movies we missed of his that I'm still on my list to see, late August, early September from nineteen ninety eight, starring Matthew Almerich and Mia Hansen Love, who Assayas became involved with until recently, and she's a filmmaker and an actor whose 2016 picture, Things to Come, was pretty great. So that I'd like to see, late August, early September. And Le Destin, which from 2000, which is Assayas' only 
you know, costume period drama that I'm aware of. Uh, and that is completely unavailable here. So anyway, still on the search for that. But we did watch, and I just want to say quickly, we did watch Demon Lover from 2002. It's a thriller about corporate espionage at the beginning of the century. It sees with that tech anxiety that's become de rigueur in shows like Black Mirror. And it stars Con Nielsen as a woman working with a French company looking to make a deal with a Japanese developer of 3D hentai pornography. Uh, she's She poisons an executive to take control of the deal, and it turns out she's working for a competitor and connected to an American distributor called uh, DemonLover.com that uh, Gina Gershon works for. And, there's a, and then there's another assistant of the woman she poisoned, played by a bilingual Chloe Sevigny, who I didn't realize is so capable in French. Uh, again, there's a woman in a, on a scooter. <laughs> Connie Nielsen rides a scooter through Paris, and Sonic Youth does the soundtrack, which is really cool. Um, this is a film I watched. It's a very chilly film. I watched it on a 17-year-old DVD. It didn't really do much for bringing warmth to the film. I, I wish I could find it on a better format. Uh, apparently, there is an unrated DVD version of it, but it's available for a ridiculous mm. price online. You know, I don't know if I'd recommend Demon Lover. It's interesting for those who want to have an essayist uh, deep dive, especially as a sort of representation of the, you know, that sort of uh, fin de siècle, uh, you know, uh, early 21st century tech thriller, cyber thriller. But um, but it kind of falls apart by the end, and and uh, I think maybe what I enjoyed most about it, it has a real, it has this genuine lost in translation mm -hmm. parallel. Both films made in Tokyo around the same time, and they both explore that sort of anxiety and uh, loneliness of of being in the back of a limo driving through Tokyo. Um, anyway. But all of which to say is is it's an interesting film. Did, what did you make of it, Stephen? This is probably the worst of the films that we watched. It's, but it's, but I I, I don't regret watching it. So, uh, you know, this might be the the two and a half out of five uh, of of the batch. But having said that, I I did kind of enjoy watching the three main female characters uh, played by Connie Nielsen, Gina Gershon, and Chloe Sevigny, um, kind of interact and do little dances around each other and you're trying to figure out who's working for who. And you know, the, there's the, 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 the dueling companies and they're kind of doing this little dance around uh, Charles Burling's kind of ruthless, but also kind of clueless executive. <laughs> like he's, he's, he's a tough guy. You wouldn't want to deal with, but at the same time, he doesn't really know what's going on around him. Uh, and, and that part of it was fascinating. And I, I wish maybe it had just kind of focused on that, but then we get into the, the kind of, bondage website right out of uh, Videodrome, the Hellfire Club becomes this kind of thing that's lurking under the plot, maybe the secret motivator and all that, and it just wasn't that interesting. Uh, and yet that sort of becomes what everything hinges on eventually uh, later in the film. So I think maybe it was just the wrong approach to this material. Maybe if they'd stuck to the tech side of things and the corporate subterfuge um, that the, these women seem to be navigating pretty at times pretty skillfully and other times pretty ineptly. Uh, I thought that was great, but yeah, it does go off the rails. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. To our house.
Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook. I'm Karsten Knox. And today we're looking at the films of Olivia Sayas. Uh, he's, uh, he's got a recent film that's on Netflix called Wasp Network. And uh, so we're kind of backtracking from that, which, which we enjoyed, maybe not as much as some of his other films, and looking at uh, some other notable entries in his filmography. Now, we, uh, we ended with um, Demon Lover in the last segment, which I said was probably the worst film of his I'd watched. Still fascinating and watchable, but not, not great and uh, not worth paying what a DVD of this film costs these days, because that seems to be the only way to find it. Uh, I also watched a film he made five years later called Boarding Gate, it's it's kind of an international crime thriller. It's on Hoopla if you want to see it. It's free to watch on Hoopla through your uh, Halifax Regional Library uh, account, or if you can get Hoopla through some other means. Uh, but I I don't know that I would start with this film if you haven't seen a lot of his work. Um, you know, it has an appealing cast. Asia Argento plays a woman who's kind of bounces between fairly shifty twilighty kind of jobs she's just come out of an abusive relationship with a shady businessman played by michael madsen they have an attraction uh but they're completely bad for each other and and madsen basically plays a complete total corporate pig um as you might expect him to um but uh so she's kind of freed herself from him at least job wise uh, and she's involved in an international trade business that also happens to smuggle drugs in to Europe from Asia so she's definitely still working on the shady side uh, of international commerce uh, and she's having an affair with her boss uh, played by Carl Ng um, who's kind of assigned her this important mission which it turns out is just kind of a way to get her out of the way uh, because she knows too much and she winds up on the run in Hong Kong She's uh, her character is very resourceful um, very skillful, uh, able to defend herself. So when they're trying to rub her out, she actually gets the upper hand. And it turns out that the crime boss behind it all is Sonic Youth's Kim Gordon, uh, who originally wanted her dead, but then sees how resourceful she is and decides to um, make good use of her rather than simply um, dispose of her. And that's 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 basically it. It, it was. Uh, I feel like some of these other films that he's done, it was kind of an international co-production with. So we got different stars from different countries and different uh, international locations. It doesn't all hold together terribly well. And, and and I think it was probably written in a hurry and made in a hurry. And uh, unless you want to see some of these uh, actors or, you know, some some scenes of Asia Argento running around Hong Kong, I wouldn't necessarily go out of my way to see this. But since it's free on Hoopla, you get what you pay for, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, funny about his connection with uh, Sonic Youth. Uh, Noise is a 2006 documentary about a French music festival with Sonic Youth and Metric, interestingly. Um, I watched uh, a little bit of Paris Je Tem from 2006, which uh, Assayas contributed the Quartier de Enfant Rouge. Please excuse my French accent um, and, uh, and pronunciation. Um, it's uh, again we get a guy on the scooter. It's the first shot of the of his short, and he's a drug dealer bringing a chunk of hash to Maggie Gyllenhaal, who's an actor working on a period drama in Paris. So this is a little bit uh, Irma Vep back uh, behind the scenes uh, again. Um, it's it's a uh, you know five minutes or so part of this 
interesting collection of shorts uh, of this film, Parish Atem, but maybe not essential. Uh, I think what is essential from uh, Asaias's career, uh, a film if you really do want to go and uh, and uh, and and indulge in some of his best work, check out Summer Hours from 2008. Uh, basically, the story is this: uh, we meet a wealthy French family gathering together in a lovely country home to celebrate the matriarch's 75th birthday. Her three 40-something children are there with their kids. And she has a degenerative disease, and she's concerned about the family's legacy and art collection, specifically the work of her uncle, who was a great painter. And she devoted her life to making sure his legacy was remembered by putting it all together in a book that's being published in the United States. The adult kids, played by Juliette Binoche, Charles Burling again, and Jeremy Renier, uh, discuss uh, their work, their success, and uh, you know, there's a little geopolitical conversation about cheap labor and feel and and globalization and the value of old things. The kids and their kids, the whole family leaves, leaving the mother alone uh, with her housekeeper. And then the rest of the film is after the death of the matriarch, and the economist's son, uh, Charles Burling, has to handle the estate. And uh, the mother wanted the house and the art collection kept together and saved for the next generation. But what I think she really wanted was the house to stay connected together within these walls. Frederick understands that, especially as he's the only sibling living, still living in France, living in Paris, a 15-minute train ride from this house. But but the Juliette Binoche character lives in New York, and she's a marrying an American, and the younger brother lives with his family in China, pursuing a sneaker business. So the vote is to sell the house, and it's about the sort of, you know, despite the fact there's a lot of love between these these siblings it's it's really a, a moving film about how uh, you know a discussion of what's valuable from the past, what's worth hanging on to, and what might be best to let go of. It's it's literally an examination of sentiment and of legacy and of culture and how it changes through the generations. There's a fa an amazing shot in the end. I won't spoil it. Where the kids sort of take over the house and you really get a sense of right. Things are very different between the generations uh what did you make of it steven oh this is a wonderful beautiful film uh it's just so painfully human and it's it's one of the most realistic kind of family portraits i've seen where uh you know the siblings you know their love for each other is clear there's some friction between them but they don't let it override you know the familial connection um you know they they eventually come around to realizing they have to do what's right for the entire family uh, rather than their own sort of selfish interests, and and I find I found that everybody kind of believed or behaved in believable ways. Now they uh, they're all living this kind of heightened life, you know, <laughs> as as international fashion designers and financiers and and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's it, they're definitely like an a upper middle class family, but but I I still felt the characters were very believable and and very richly drawn, and um, and yeah the, the learning to, to realize what's important in life, even though they have all these, you know, expensive paintings and this beautiful estate and all this kind of stuff. It's, you know, that it's not worth destroying their family relationships over, over stuff, even if it is, you know, $150,000 paintings or whatever it is. And, and it also has a lot to say about the effect of art on our lives, how art enriches our lives and how it passes through our lives, especially if it's been, you know, embedded in our DNA since birth, since the mother, played by um, Edith Scobe, who is, I, I just sidebar, she was, she's a fabulous French actor who was 
most maybe most famously in um, Eyes Without a Face, the great French horror film of the 1960s. Um, uh, she's she's terrific in that, and it's great to see her here. She's very luminescent in her kind of brief appearance as the matriarch early on in the film, and that was another big point for me. But I, but I just love how the characters all interact and and are trying to live their lives while coping with this kind of family crisis, which we all have to go through at some point in our lives. You know, in my own personal life, some of this stuff that's happening in this film is probably happening right now. And uh, it's it's certainly a film for an older audience that that can appreciate um, the things that happen as you make your way further in life as a kind of a middle-aged adult and and dealing with those concerns. And I felt it all was handled very uh, realistically, but also, you know, very humanely. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And, you know, we, we were struggling to find thematic through lines for Asaius's work. And a sense of humanism in a lot of his work is definitely there. And his, his also his presenting stories without a, a hard political perspective, you know, allowing us to sort of make the audience to make its own decision as to how these are these things good or bad, how they uh, how they work, how we all live in, in this modern world. And uh, one of the things that he does extraordinarily well is write for women. And he gives great, great roles for women in his films. And that is very much uh, borne out in his, the next two films we're going to talk about, The Clouds of Sils Maria and Personal Shopper. Personal Shopper remains my favorite of his work. Um, and, I mean, the, uh, the uh, these are probably his, maybe his most well-known films. And I mean, remarkable that this far into his career, you know, 25 some years into his career, uh, 30 years into his career, and he would be making the work this vital and interesting. I absolutely recommend Clouds of Sils Maria and Personal Shopper. It also forced me to reassess Kristen Stewart as an actor, and she is so good in these films. Uh, Clouds of Sils Maria roughly is about uh, the relationship between a an older actor played by um, Juliette Binoche and a, a younger actor, a younger uh, her assistant basically played by Kristen Stewart, and then uh, this play that they're working as they as they sit in in Switzerland. And the the meat of the film is them going over this play as they as they sit in Switzerland, whereas. Personal Shopper is a film that is very hard to describe. It's a it's a, a genre film, but it has multiple genres, and it centers Kristen Stewart's character Maureen right in the middle of it. She's bereaved by the death of of her twin brother, and she's living and doing this job that she doesn't really enjoy as a professional shopper for a wealthy famous person, and uh, and it's a bit of a murder mystery as well as a supernatural mystery. Uh, and uh, yes, again, once again, features many shots of uh, of scooters in Paris. <laughs> it's 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 a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, I would say both of these films are are really great. Yeah, it's amazing how well they complement each other. Just because, I mean, uh, obviously, Kristen Stewart is is the the lin- linchpin in both these films, playing a very similar character in each film, but in completely different situations. You know, in Clouds of Sils Maria, she has this fairly wonderful symbiotic relationship with Julia Pinoch's older actor. And uh, you know, I love the scenes where they're running the lines of the play and you realize how much the play kind of mirrors their own relationship. And it's times you kind of forget, oh, wait, is this them talking or are they doing lines from the play? And it happens numerous times throughout the course of the film. Uh, not necessarily for comic effect, but I, I really enjoyed having that particular rug pulled out from under me when I couldn't figure out if they're really arguing or they're doing it in character. And, and it, it, anyway, it, it's uh, it, it's really well handled. And, and then Personal Shopper, you know, 
taking a similar relationship and then completely spinning it around to a negative one with this uh, added pressure of the fact that she's a medium trying to contact the spirit of her dead twin brother. You know, so it just takes it in a completely different direction. And uh, they, they, they go together really well. And Stuart is so good in both of them. Um, you know, juggling all these different elements. And she actually won the César, um, the French acting award uh, for Clouds of Sils Maria and was the first American actress to do so, which I think is, uh, was well-deserved as well. Yeah, absolutely. She's so good in, in these films. And both of them are on Criterion. I own the Criterion Blu-rays. I'm really happy to because I've revisited them a number of times. And uh, re-watching uh, Clouds of Sils Maria just this weekend uh i it was great seeing the extra extra sort of uh, the added materials on the blu-ray uh where where Asaeus had written the role for binoche and the other role valentine had actually already been cast but when Asaeus spoke with stewart uh he wanted her for joanne the young actor who's played by chloe grace moretz but stewart was like okay i i really want to play valentine and this is why and he basically convinced her convinced him that uh, she convinced him to give give her the role, which I found that was really interesting. Um, he also talked about how what a big part Fassbender's The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant and Bergman's Persona were both influences. And that's two episodes for us, <laughs> Stephen, where the filmmakers have referenced Persona, which is a bit of a blind spot for me. I have never seen it. So we're going to have to have a, a Bergman episode or a Fassbender episode so we can watch some of these movies, I think. Well, I'm down for both of those. I love Persona. Uh, Halifax Regional Library actually has the Blu-ray, and it is stunning. It is such a gorgeous film. Um, Sven Nykvist was the cinematographer on that, and uh, it's also on Criterion Channel, of course. But but you know, if you don't have that, head to the library whenever it's safe and possible to do so. Yeah, it's um, actually the library are, are, is open again, so we can go now. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I recommend that. And and. Uh, just, I guess just before we go, you, you also saw he made nonfiction in 2018, which had a blink and you'll miss it kind of release. And I didn't I blinked. I didn't see it. But I guess you did, Karsten. Yeah, yeah, he did. He did we showed it at uh, Carbon Arc Cinema here in Halifax. And uh, nonfiction is uh, I didn't love it as much as Personal Shopper or Clouds of Sils Maria, but it is a really charming French comedy. It's um, it's concerned with the division between public and private, uh, attention of celebrity again, and a little bit of mortality as well. And and um, it's a it's a dry intellectual comedy about you know groups of intellectuals arguing and small groups over wine about work and social issues where they're secretly unfaithful to their spouses. Um, and uh, and it's set in the uh, uh, publishing world in Paris. And uh, you know, one of the things Assayas is very good at is shooting people having serious conversation, discussing theory, and that stuff can be really deadly dull in some other in the hands of other filmmakers. But Assayas is so good at that, and he moves the he likes to move the camera across the axis behind the heads of his. Uh, his actors look for that when you watch his films the camera constantly moving back and forth behind the heads of actors also he really loves the fade to black <laughs> which is a, a lovely kind of quality in his films and it makes the films feels a little more meditative uh, anyway i recommend nonfiction. i say seek it out if you can i don't know how easy it is to find Not i haven't very. seen it since we showed it at carbon arc okay <laughs> uh, but uh but yeah it's uh you know, Assayas really rewards digging deep into his work. And 
And that's it for this edition of Lens Me Your Ears. Thanks for tuning in and listening to us go on at length about one of our favorite current filmmakers, Olivier Assayas, and his wonderful body of work. My name is Stephen Cook. I'm an arts writer here in Halifax, and you can find me online on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. I'm Karsten Knox. I am a film writer, and uh, you can find me online on Twitter as well. Uh, name of my blog, Flaw in the Iris. If you enjoy the show and want to go through our many episodes, this is episode 104, by the way, so there's lots of shows to choose from. Uh, feel free to download it from your favorite uh, podcast provider. And if you want to support us, we have a Patreon account. You can throw some dollars our way to help us uh, with production costs and so on. Uh, we air every Tuesday, or sorry, every other Tuesday on CKDU FM 88.1 at 5.30 p.m. Thanks to them for that and also for the use of their studio when we're able to use their studio and everyone at the Village Soundcast Network who make it sound all pretty. Thanks very much and we'll see you next time. Au revoir. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.